Hello and welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a parenting podcast where you can detox from the world around you and get a window into how other people live their lives. Come detox with detox. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and on today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Tim Leahy. Tim is the spouse of Jessica Leahy, who's been on the show before. In fact, if you don't remember, I will happily let you know that Jessica was on episode 115, The Gift of Failure, where she talked about schooling and education, and specifically her book, The Gift of Failure. So definitely want to go check that out. But Tim and I get into a great conversation around uh these uncertain times about COVID-19, the coronavirus, starting our kids back in school. He's actually an infectious disease specialist and associate professor of medicine at Dartmouth's School of Medicine. He writes regularly at Med Murmurs. He also writes for The Atlantic and a bunch of other great publications. So definitely check him out and uh, check out my conversation with Tim right after this. Welcome back to Detox Podcast. With me at this time is Mr. Tim Leahy. And Tim, is it Dr. Tim Leahy? Yeah, Dr. Tim Leahy's fine, although uh, uh, Tim is good. All right. Well, Tim, thank you so much for being on the show today. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, looking forward to the conversation. Me too. And before we get started, I do want to let people know that this episode is brought to you by Snuffy. Snuffy is a clothing brand about empowering you to show your weird unapologetically with bravery and confidence. 10% of profit goes to LGBTQ plus organizations led by trans people of color. Shop online now at snuffy.co. That's snuffy, S-N-U-F-F-Y dot C-O. And uh, check it out. It's run by Nick Silvestri, who did the Detox logo. So if you like it, go support him. Um, But Tim, I want to start out today's conversation by asking parents who come on the show, uh, what do you think makes a good parent? What do I think makes a good parent? Yes. Wow, that's a that's a great question, and and uh, you know you went big there. I like that. Uh, <laughs> before we dive into something as minuscule as the COVID nineteen pandemic, we we get even higher <laughs> altitude. I love it. Right. What makes a good parent? You know, I think. I think uh, uh, for me, the the moments that define that are when you're most tempted not to be a good parent. Mm. You know, when you're super frustrated at the end of a day and and you just wanted your kid to do the thing that you wanted and yet things aren't going the way you planned. And I think if in those moments you can rise above and sort of subordinate your frustration or your agenda to what is globally best for the kid in that moment, what's the lesson that they can learn, what's the behavior that they can uh, grow to exhibit, then I I think that if you can do that consistently, that makes uh, a really good parent. I love that. And, you know, speaking of rising above and trying to think about being a good parent, there's a lot of talk right now about what to do about sending our kids back to school. And I know that you've written a fantastic piece uh, specifically about this. So I'd really like, let's just, no preamble, let's just dive right in. What is your, what has been your perspective with regards to how the U.S. has mishandled, I would say in a lot of ways, the, the COVID-19, the coronavirus and the pandemic we're in. And then how does that translate into a lot of folks seemingly, uh, being fine to just send, uh, maybe I'm putting some presumptions there. I'm, I'm presuming that folks are, are okay with all of a sudden, okay with sending their kids back into a very dangerous situation, which is a school environment where there's risk of contagion, but perhaps there's a lot of other 
things at play. So I just, I would love to get your perspective over these last several months and then how that translates to perhaps how schools should be adjusting here at the start of the school year in the fall. You know, I think, you know, there's no way around the fact that the arrival of this pandemic is going to be distressing. You know, this is a a catastrophe of a historic nature, and uh, it it was never going to be anything other than that. Uh, But I do think the last several months looking back, um, we've had many moments in the United States where instead of hewing to the best science, instead of having physicians and nurses and public health experts guide our response, that instead things have become politicized and one political party believes one thing, another believes another thing. And, and, and that has not only steered us away from effective responses, it has also, I think, fueled massive uh, uh, worry. And, and just families are not sure who they can trust. They're, they don't, you know, even if they kind of know what the right approach would be, they, they fear that their public leaders are not going to actually follow through. And, and so that's compounded the distress that I think we all feel. It, it went from being, um, you know, something that could be galvanizing and something that we could all respond and, and a challenge we could rise to, to instead something that has divided us as a nation. And, you know, you look around the world and we see very different stories in other countries. And I think that's going to be the thing that historians judge us on is that we had an opportunity to show our mettle and to do battle better, uh, but instead uh, uh, we fell prey to the political ambitions of our elected leaders. And that's a catastrophe all on its own. Definitely. And I'm, I'm here in Texas where, I mean, you can see how horrible it is, right, with the, the number of cases and the deaths. And, and it was a situation where I remember it was something where myself and my fellow neighbors were rallying around together, we're supporting, we're all doing the right things. And all of a sudden it's, you know, for one reason or another, I tend to think more political driven. Texas wanted to re, re quote unquote reopen and everybody was going to bars and restaurants. And, and then all of a sudden, why are cases skyrocketing? Well, because Texas is reopened. Then Governor Abbott had to walk that back, you know, uh, take back some of the statements and say, well, now we got to reclose. Now you do have to have facial coverings, masks in places. And, and then people got outraged. And it's like, you know, if we had done this in the beginning and wrote it out, we wouldn't be in this specific situation here in at the beginning of August. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and I think, you know, that that does still pose an opportunity to us all. Uh, sure. It's, it's still frightening. Certainly mistakes have been made, but it is not too late to learn from those mistakes and, hey, and say, hey, you know, we can argue all we want about what the right level of taxation is or, or who should be allowed to own what gun or whatever. You know, plenty of things sure. are worth argument. But it is not worth having an elected official with no scientific training having an argument with somebody who does that instead our better process would look like this. And we, we can still... Uh, learn those lessons and go forward. And I think uh, we would still have some hard times uh, ahead, but I think at least we would feel like we were doing the very best we could. 
I think that's really accurate when you're talking about, uh, you know, elected officials who don't have these type of medical backgrounds gain arguments with the experts on these situations. I, I mean, it seems ludicrous to me that if I went to the doctor and the doctor said, you've got this disease or this flu, and these are the steps that you need to do to get better. And my boss is saying, that's a load of crap. You need to get back to work. Yeah. Forget it. Like you're not contagious. You're fine. Like, in no situation would I listen to my boss over the doctor. I would listen to the doctor and do what the doctor tells me. Because that's, that's accepted. But, but here we find ourselves in a situation where we're not listening. A vast majority of people are not listening to the doctors because somebody else is telling them not to. And I just, it astounds me. And, 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 and to that point, I get frustrated because I think about how there are... I mean, very, very specifically, I will give a very specific example. So Ken Paxton, who's the attorney general in Texas, um, told schools that they didn't have to listen to medical health officials in order to make the decisions about school, about reopening in person. After they had already made announcements that they were going to be virtual for at least the first six weeks, if not longer. Yeah. And then you saw a lot of school districts that walked back when how long they were going to be exclusively virtual some went from nine weeks to three weeks based off of the attorney general who has zero credence and or zero credibility in the medical field it was clearly doing this to try and get a, a seat at the table and it's frustrating so I, I as a frustrated parent i'm i'm very upset yeah. but i, I want to know um from your perspective you know what are things that parents can do when these politicians or other folks are making these type of declarations that are directly impacting your kid and their community, how can parents respond to it? What are the options that are available for parents to keep everybody safe? So I think there are some basic common sense uh, options that can be really important. And, and I think it does begin with the decision whether or not to send your child back to school. And you know, hopefully one lives in a state where, where, you know, public health officials are running the public health response. And, 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 and so really that parental decision-making is in lockstep with, with uh, the uh, decisions that are being made about opening schools. But, but even if not, I do think each family needs to make a decision about what is safest for the child, what is safest for the family, what's possible for the family uh, to do. And, uh, and to sort of uh, feel empowered that they sort of know the factors to consider in the decision and to do the very best. And then, and we can talk about what those are. And then I think once you've made a decision, if the decision is to go back to school for one reason or another, either you decide that's best for the kid or you decide that's the only option that's available to you, then there are some safety measures that you can advocate for and take in the school to make sure the risk is as low as you possibly can make it. And there, yeah. so I think in each case, there are a couple, there's some factors to consider and whether you go back to school. And then if you go back to school, there's some things that you can advocate for to make sure it's as safe as it can be. Right. It's, um, I think it can be really difficult to wade through what's best, but I do, I do think there are, um, a lot of very specific and intangible things that you can do um, depending on your decision. I, I want to dig into, you know, there's a lot of talk around where are we at with the vaccine? And I think it can be um, typically 
it can be different and difficult if only one country or one specific area of the world is dealing with this, um, as opposed to where we're, we find ourselves in a global pandemic situation. And so, um, you know, I, I think I heard months ago, Canada was close to one. And then I heard something the other day that a different country was, was working on one. So what, what has been your perspective on perhaps where we may be at with the vaccine and maybe, maybe even beyond that, what's a realistic time frame folks should even be thinking about when we could have a vaccine? Yeah, so right now we have a few vaccines that are in advanced clinical trials, and we have a chance of getting an answer in those clinical trials, either in late 2020 or early 2021. And, you know, if we get lucky, one of those vaccines, or maybe even more than one, will work. Never a guarantee their, you know, history is full of examples of really credible vaccines that looked good early on and just kind of fizzled out because they didn't work. So we'll see. But it is possible that by the end of this year uh, or in 2021 that we'll at least hear that the vaccine is there. And the, the U.S. government and other funding entities are already paying for millions of doses of the most promising candidates to be made even before we know if they work so that if we do get proof that they work, many millions will have already been made and be ready to go. Okay. So you could imagine that within a few months of the discovery of a vaccine that works, hopefully that won't be too long, but we'll see. But within a few months of the discovery that it works, we'll be able to start shipping that vaccine around the world. And since the U.S. is the major funder of that vaccine research, there's no doubt that the U.S. will be a recipient of doses of that uh, vaccine. Uh, and, and so you could imagine that... Um, some, you know, maybe in 2021, if uh, we get lucky, some doses of vaccine will make it to the people who need it the most. That's good. That's good. How do you feel about what it means that we're going into a general election at the end of this year? Do you see, I know you're not a political pundit per se, but, but how do you feel that that could impact either the increase or the decrease with regards to um, vaccine or uh, accommodations being made as a result of the virus? Or, or do you not necessarily see much changing from that perspective uh, based on the results of the election? So science is apolitical. And uh, sure. the truth is the truth. And science moves on uh, with good science being done by uh, people of all political persuasions. And historically, scientists of both political parties have contributed to major scientific advances. And so uh, I think in most elections, uh, one would say that the advancement of science is unaffected by which party wins the, uh, uh, the highest number of electoral uh, uh, votes. Uh, this election is different. I would say that um, President Trump has been consistently against science. He has denied climate change. He has consistently uh, questioned what has been fully accepted by the scientific community in the COVID-19 epidemic. And, and many, many examples uh, abound after that. And I, I think that if the United States is fortunate enough to get uh, uh, a president who does not deny the science, we will be much better positioned to fight this pandemic uh, and get back to normal life. How, I, I think, 
you know, going back even to the virus for, for a moment, I'm thinking about the fact that it seems to be ever changing. And I know it is, and that is perhaps a, a, an obvious statement, but I think there are so many, I'll put it this way. There were so many levels of assurances that were present early on that I feel continue to not be true anymore. And I'll, I'll give an example is like, I think original it was, you're only susceptible to the virus if you're old or super sick already or have pre-existing conditions, right? Um, and then it was, well, you can get it if you're healthy, but still only old. And then it was, well, you can get it, but pets can't get it. Now it's like, well, okay, animals can get it. And it's like, but it's only if you have a temperature. Now we're finding out people have had it who had allergy symptoms only, you know, and people have had it when they had no fever and they had chills. And then, I mean, you're just seeing all over the map that I think it's quite possible. And I think this is the, the scary part is while cases continue to rise in the United States, I'll just use the United States as an example. I feel that there are a significantly there's a significant population that has not been identified in those tests that definitely have either had it or currently have it. And they're not aware of it because what they're seeing in their immediate circle of people saying, this is, this is what the virus looks and feels like is not accurate for how they feel. Is that fairly correct to say? Yeah, you're, you're asking, uh, you're asking uh, uh, questions at a couple of different levels and, and at, at sort of at one level, it's, it's super important to think about how, uh, much of a roller coaster ride we've all been on. You know, as, sure. as you say, there have been so many things that appeared to be the case early on, but were modified or we thought was the right guidance, but then it was changed. And, and, and how is it that the general public comes to terms with this sort of continuously changing story? And yeah. I realized partway through the, you know, the last several months that I was having a, a diametrically opposed reaction to that than many of my friends and family members who do not do science. I was reacting to it positively. I was saying, oh, this is great. You know, the, the nature of good science is that we don't know the answer up front. We come up with hypotheses, we test them, we eliminate okay, the bad ones, we get the good ones. So for me, when I see the, the conception of things changing rapidly and we're learning more all the time and, oh, no, no, it's more like this, that to me looks like great science because we're, you know, we're sort of hunter-gatherers and we're chasing the beast through the jungle and we're getting sure. closer and closer and you can see the shadow off through the leaves and, oh, is it, is it, a, is it a lion? Is it a zebra? Uh, you know, I think to the general public, it, it feels quite different because, well, don't these guys know the answer and, and can I trust them early on? And so the way I've tried to uh, help people come to grips with that is to say that, that you know, if, if it's early on in a global pandemic, if somebody tells you that they know all the answers, you know that that is snake oil. You know, this has never happened before. So if somebody's fully right. confident they know all the answers, they are wrong for sure. Whereas somebody right. says, here's the best hypothesis, here's what we're testing, we're doing these more studies to figure it out. Now you know you have a dweeb on your hands and you have a chance of some good science being done. So yeah. I sort of say partly this is just a massive you know, a global scale of public education and the nature of scientific research that this is exactly how it should go. And in fact, this is, it's, it's just astounding how quickly we're unraveling the mysteries of this virus. Yeah. So that does get to this, you know, you asked a, a specific question around this, which is, 
uh, you know, we're, as we're as this information is unfolding, we're realizing that that many, many, many more people can be infected with this virus and not even know it, or might have really atypical symptoms. So, how do you know if you had it or if you yeah. didn't? And can you trust the test to to really answer that question yet? Yeah. And and I do it's, think the answer is yeah. we're part way there. You know, we have these. Sure fantastic PCR-based test that can tell you right now, are you infected today with it? Uh, uh, and, and those are trustable so that if somebody comes in sick, if that test is negative, that, that's probably not what they have, probably. Uh, on the other hand, I don't have tests that I can trust yet to tell you if you had it a few months ago. I can't tell you if you've been exposed with any confidence. And, and, and so, and who should be tested is you know, all of that is still an evolving science. And so I'm sure in six months we'll look back and say, you know, uh, you know, boy, in August of 2020, we hardly knew anything. Yeah. You know, I still think about the fact that I got mono in college and it stayed with me for about a year that I would have it on and off. It would flare up. Usually, I mean, I was a theater major. So usually when we'd be going, you know, tech week, running up to performance week, you know, when there's late nights, little sleep, little hydration, mono would hit right at the end of it. And it would wipe me out and, and be awful. And it was something where I remember when I first got it, it was awful. And then it continued to flare up. And I, I was trying to figure out why is it there? And it's like, well, you've got it it's it's going to linger it's going to linger um um intensely for a very specific time and then it's going to continue to like linger on in different ways can you know for a good portion of your life and that's what i remember my my doctor told me at the time and i was like this seems ridiculous to me that that this type of virus could just hang on and continue and and i'm wondering if covid is going to be similar in that in that idea to mono um, and I think that's something we're, we're, we're possibly try, starting to poke in that direction to see if that's the case. But it's it's so new. I think we're not quite fully there yet. We're going to have to see, you know, a year or two down the line and then test and and form those hypotheses. But what's your perspective on on, you know, that kind of comparison between something like mono versus um, COVID-19? You know, uh, I think this is a great question, and one way to think of it is almost like COVID nineteen is the the misbegotten progeny of influenza and mono. You know that <laughs> that right up front, most people who have COVID nineteen look like they have influenza. They're coughing, they can't breathe, they've got muscle aches, fevers, all that typical stuff. And, and so early on, one of the challenges is distinguishing. COVID-19 from lots of other respiratory infections. It's impossible to do on symptoms alone. And yet, the more we learn about this infection, the more we're seeing that a substantial proportion of people who got sick with that respiratory infection then do have a lingering illness that's that's pretty similar to mono. And, um, and we think that some of the mechanisms are similar, you know, that the immune system just gets so stirred up so disorganized and out of control that it can take weeks and even months to, for it to settle down. So I, I think that's a really nice analogy because I think people are familiar with mono and can kind of understand COVID-19 uh, through that lens. Right. And I will say that I got, I definitely got it when I was in college, you know, freshman year and packed around a bunch of people, a lot of new exposures. And I, and I even remember, and this is, okay, this is another point, like to that to that, I'm thinking about school and, uh, and we're getting close to time, but I want to kind of start to end with this is 
this is what made me so frustrated as a parent is I remember going to school, you have to be up to date on all of your shots. And then specifically when I went to college, I had to get one or two new shots or vaccines I'd never had to get before. Um, I had to get the TB test. And then there's something else that I had to get for living in a dorm, going to college. I, I don't remember, but, but th these were part of it. And I had to get those and prove that I got them before I could start. So you're, you're saying that your kids have to have the most up-to-date vaccines, be in good health, all this stuff before they can come into school. But yet, but yet we're comfortable sending our kids into that same building in the middle of a global pandemic without a vaccine. That's what burns me up from the inside. It's a great question. And, and I think, you know, let's be honest, parents all around the world are asking exactly this question. Is it, mm -hmm. is it good parenting of me to send my kid back to school like it is in most years? Or is it bad parenting? Should I protect them from that incubator of virus? And uh, so here's a good way to think of it. As a physician, uh, every time I prescribe a medication to somebody, I know that that medication has risks. Some side effect could happen. Some laboratory abnormality could happen. And, and in rare cases, that could be deadly. And yet, I'm always asking the question of, is the benefit of that medicine worth those risks? You know, sure, aspirin can make you bleed even in your brain and it can be deadly if you get really unlucky. But boy, if you take that aspirin and help protect you from death from that heart attack, it was worth taking that risk. Sending a child to school during the COVID-19 pandemic is quite similar to that. We know that children's academic development and their ability to mature into full-fledged adults, to learn, to be ready for the next level of learning, to have emotional development, to connect to their friends, to have the safety of, of uh, schools, because let's not forget that many kids depend on school for uh, safety, to have access to school lunches, which is, can be no small thing for uh, many kids, can be of life-altering importance. So that's the upside of the medicine. But the downsides this, this year are real. And, and I do believe that putting kids together in a school environment is going to make transmission happen. We've already seen it. And so in the vast majority of cases in kids, they don't even know that they've got it or if they got it, they just had a, a, a cold. But rarely they can get a serious illness or somebody around them can get a serious illness. And so there's real risk there. And so for me, I think it kind of boils down to how important is it for that kid's development to have that schooling experience? And I don't want to uh, undersell how important that is. It's incredibly important um, versus how, how much risk there is. And it turns out that there is no one size fits all answer to that question. And, and so I think maybe a way to think of it is to think about different kids in different states you can imagine that you have a kid who is medically fragile, maybe had leukemia a few years ago and had to go through a stem cell transplant in order to recover from that. And they uh, usually would go to school in a state like your state where the number of cases is really skyrocketed. Right. Well, so in that case, going to school is an extremely high-risk situation. So let's say maybe the school is also 
sort of skeptical about whether masks are a good idea and sort of says, yeah, but your personal freedoms are everything. You should just come and hang out and do your thing and no safety measures are being in place. I got to say as a parent, that high-risk kid and that high-risk state and that high-risk school, it's nuts to send that kid to school. Take another kid. They're healthy. They're in a low-incident state, and that school is doing all the right stuff. Masks for the kids who are old enough to deal with it. Masks for the teachers. Physical distancing measures in place. Surfaces are being sanitized. Lots of measures are in place like hybrid learning or having classes outside to try to space people out. You'd be crazy not to send that kid to school. So I think the hard part is each of us have to sort of say, okay, what's the deal in my town? How bad is the epidemic? How serious is my school taking it? What are the risks for my kid? And also, what are the risks for the family around the child that they might get this? And we kind of each have to do our own little piece of calculus and uh, figure it out. And, and no way around it. That, that's, that's some tough math to have to do. Definitely. Is there, the last question I want to ask you is, is there something you would like people to keep in mind? One little bit of advice um, that perhaps you've been giving uh, folks in general throughout this, but perhaps specifically parents during this difficult time. So each of us is going to make the best decision we can. And, and, and this is going to be hard. Absolutely. And then time is going to play out, right? And we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll send our kids to school. We won't send our kids to school. Wh- whatever happens. And then we'll sort of see what happens in our town, what happens to the epidemic, how's the kid doing with that experience. And, and what I'm thinking about is fall of 2021 and 2022 from the perspective of that time. What do we look back on? Do we look back on a time of global catastrophe in which our family rallied around itself and thought out loud about this difficult decision and did its very best and had a story of family strength and perseverance and bravery amid a community that came together to help each other out and to make pods with each other and to support local businesses, but safely and to, to try to keep each other safe as best they could and to be respectful and kind to each other in a country that sort of had some stumbles in the beginning, but said, you know what, we're better than this. We can rise above and show the world what we're made of. Is that what we look back on? Or do we look back on a very different story of, of fear and nobody cares about me and it's, it's, you know, brother against brother and family against family and political collapse. I think we have it in us to be proud of this time. And just like people look back on, you know, uh, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're proud of their service in World War II or they're proud of the way that families pulled it back together after Great Depression and made a, a roaring economy come back again or they're, they're proud of their greatest act of creativity in their life. I hope that we can pull together and be cool-headed and kind to each other and be proud of the kind of communities that we made. I love that. Well, if people want to follow you, Tim, and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? I'm a pretty avid Twitter user, so it's Tim Leahy, L-A-H-E-Y-M-D. And, uh, and, uh, and I, I, I appreciate you having me on there, and I really appreciate you getting the word out to, to parents and teachers. It's a tough time, and the more they can hear reassuring voices and voices of common sense, the better. Absolutely. We do need a hashtag for this episode. Should it be, I came up with hashtag listen to science. How does that sound? Oh, I love it. That's awesome. All right. All right. Well, Tim, thank you again so much. Um, Listeners, we'll be back next week with another great episode. But until next time, hashtag listen to science and hashtag be a better dad. 
If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Detox Podcast or visit DetoxPodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit VocalNow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W dot com.